Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. If you would stand and join me in the scripture reading. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're carrying on in our series in the book of Hebrews, and John read for us Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, and I would love to carry you with us and, and bring you up to speed entirely, but, but the short version is this. The people to whom this letter were, that were originally uh, the hearers and, and readers of this were a people who were on the verge of catastrophic external pressure for their faith. Uh, they had already had their property seized. Some of the number of the church had already been thrown in prison. Uh, some and most all of them were facing daily public ridicule for their faith. And as we know from history, uh, most of the people in this church would have ultimately died for their faith by being martyrs as a result of that. And the writer wants to make sure that the people who have started well with the Lord Jesus Christ finish well. And the text that we looked at last week describes the Christian life as a race. And it does put it in athletic terms. Uh, not the race of a sprint, but a race of endurance. For as long as we have life and breath, we are told that we are running this Christian race. And we are to run it in faith, and we are to cross the finish line. And last week's text pointed out to us that, that there is an audience watching us. Some of that audience were the great figures that were mentioned to us in chapter 11, these great heroes of the faith. Some of them were, were great victors. They they won tremendous battles. They raised up nations and conquered other nations. And, 
And some of the people toward the end of the chapter in chapter 11 were the nameless, faithless, faceless ones who died in obscurity for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us in verse 1 that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who are, if you will, metaphorically cheering us on. But more importantly, we're told in verse 2 of this chapter that the Lord Jesus Christ is our single greatest champion. He is the one who has run the race before us to its completion in total and complete and in perfect faith, facing the same things you and I face, but facing other obstacles that we cannot even fathom nor imagine. And the key to the whole exercise and and really the rest of the book is how are people like you and I going to finish the race in faith? How are we going to see ourselves to the end? And I suggested to you that for me that is problematic because I wake up most morning not even thinking about the fact that I'm in a race. You know, I don't, I don't think about the goal at the end, and so consequently I'm so burdened and so bogged down by the day-to-day things that I think I've got to get through and succeed in that I fail to give my attention to the race that is set before me. And so the question then becomes, when the race gets hard, when all of a sudden the course is all uphill and I cannot see the summit of the hill, what is going to keep me on track? And I'm no longer young, you know. I mean, when I was 20, a long race didn't seem all that big a deal. And hills were no major obstacles. But I'm in my 60s now, you know. And, and the race is well over halfway. And quite honestly, the challenges are not getting any easier. They, they really aren't. And I'm talking physical challenges. And I'm talking spiritual challenges. Emotional challenges. Relational challenges. Professional challenges. They're getting bigger. They're not getting smaller. And you know what? The people that I talk to in their 90s, they're not getting smaller for them either. So I look and I say, how am I going to make it? How will I accomplish the race that God has set before me? And that is the preeminent topic that the author is working through here. And and I've got to tell you really and truly that my study this week led me into deep confusion because there are parts of this text which read very simply, but my little brain, the way my brain works, I got really confused. And so when we start out, I'm going to share with you my confusion. And then I'm really hoping that I will make it clear by the time we're done, okay? If I don't, and I'm being serious, come to me and say, I got the confusion part. 
You made me confused when I wasn't, but you didn't make it clear. So come to me and, and ask me to make it clear if I didn't by the end of the sermon. Verse 3 begins this way, Consider him, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now that verse is, is really straightforward but deeply profound. Jesus, the one that we are to keep our eyes fixed upon, is one who endured enormous hardship from sinners so that you and I would not grow weary or faint-hearted. I started the sermon saying that's the issue, that's the goal, and it's not getting easier. I'm 60, almost 62 years old, and I'm, and I'm more prone to weariness and faint-heartedness now than I was when I was 20. Jesus endured what he endured so that Dave White will not grow weary and faint-hearted. Now, that's terrific news. That's tremendous news. Now, the question is, how does that work out in practical day-to-day -day living and, and so on and so forth? Now, where things got confusing for me is verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I'll tell you why that's confusing to me. And, and this is where I'm going to not intentionally try to confuse you. When I think of my wrestling against sin, I think of the things that are prone to be problematic for me. The things that I may face on an hourly basis or a daily basis or a weekly basis. And my struggle is against those kinds of things. And in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, as we are introduced to the idea of the race, we are told to divest ourselves of sin which so easily entangles us. But my personal wrestling with sin, I couldn't see how that was going to lead me to dying. You see what I'm saying? Here the writer tells these readers, you have not yet resisted sin to the point where you are going to die. And so I didn't understand this tension of how my personal wrestling with sin might lead to my death. Do I have you confused yet? Good, good. Are you welcome to my little world? It's a terrible thing. And so I began to wonder and I began to study and I began to think perhaps this sin, which so easily entangles me, includes the personal wrestling that I do with sin, the things that I face on an hourly, daily, weekly basis, but perhaps the breadth of the sin that is being spoken of here is even greater than my personal wrestling. Last week I told us that in the first two chapters we were called to self-examination to see what sin was it that we were wrestling with and, and to take steps toward uh, divesting ourselves of that sin so that we could move forward in the course more effectively. 
But does this sin that is being spoken of here go beyond that while including that? And I found an answer. This may, it was, this will not come to a shock to any of us who know the Bible and are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world which is hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't see it as apparently here as you would any other place in the world, but we live in a world that is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that comes over the airways on the television or on the radio or, or, or the world views of the educational systems and the colleges and the universities and, and the schools is against the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was true for the first hearers of this letter. Everything around them was hostile toward them. And it was true for the Lord Jesus Christ. He faced everything that we face times a million, yet without sin, because he, like us, is an alien and a stranger in a foreign land. Now, we don't always see that. We don't always believe that. We don't always live that way. But this world is hostile to the image of God. And that is the weight and the press of sin as much as the individual sin that you and I wrestle with and we are challenged with on an hourly basis. And so for the original hearers of this letter, in just a couple of years, they were going to be taken into the Colosseum and thrown to the lions simply because of their faith. These people had already had their property confiscated and members of their church thrown into prison. Now, I thought about that for a while, and I thought, well, what if somebody came and, and wanted to take a few things that I own? But let's just say that I wrote the last mortgage check on my home. And for the first time in my life, it'll probably never happen, but for the first time in my life, I will say, I own this house and not the bank. And the day following that, the state came and said, this house now belongs to the state. That happens, friends. It doesn't happen in America. But that's the kind of confiscation of things. And then ultimately to go and be martyred for your faith is, is what's being talked to about here because the world in which we live is hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we allow the light to not be hidden under the bushel basket, the more we come onto that radar screen. And it is very possible, if not probable, and I'm not just preaching gloom and doom here, I'm just speaking realities, that it's going to happen here in America at some point. It happens every place else in the world. Why wouldn't it happen here? That you have not yet resisted sin to the point that it costs you your life. But those choices may face us sooner than we like. 
And where is that line? Where our resistance against the world that is pressing in upon us all the time needs to be taken to the point where it really does start to cost us something. That's what I believe is being spoken of here. The individual sin, do not misunderstand me. The sin that we are to lay aside so that we can run the course well and effectively, but also we need to recognize the environment in which we live, which is hostile to everything Christian. Now in verse 5, we move into another kind of situation here. It says, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now the word sons here is all inclusive. But it's important because the word sons in the, both the Greek but most importantly in the Hebrew mind would indicate the inheritor of something. Okay? Progeny inherits. And so I want you to think of yourselves. You are being addressed as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Now, the whole point of this exercise and the whole context of this chapter is keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, right? And now all of a sudden, we are being addressed and reminded that we are sons belonging to a heavenly father and that father disciplines. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of discipline. In my mind, 99.9% of the time, I think this. Do bad, get whooped. I mean, that's just what I think of when I think of discipline. Punitive. There's a rule. I cross the line. I pay the price for crossing the line. That is exactly what is being spoken of here and other things. And it's the other things that I want to focus on for just a couple of minutes. There's no question here that God, as our Father, disciplines punitively his people. That would include you and I. But there are also two other components to discipline that are included in this text that I want to highlight for you. And this also helps clarify my confusion when I talk about discipline. Discipline can be used in the context of athletics as well. Now, I mentioned last week in passing, and it's, and, and it's really very silly, but I, I did run track. I didn't run track well, but I ran track. And we had coaches. And I played football, and we had coaches. And not everything that we did was punitive. But there were times when I was told to run four more laps around the track so that I would be trained in order to run the race the following week more effectively. There was a preparatory nature to discipline. When I was on the football field, we did all these drills and these terrible things and there 
one guy would be getting water over here and one guy would be puking over there and, you know, on and on this stuff would go. But nobody was being punished punitively, but they were being disciplined so that when the time came, they could perform. And they did these things. So when you think of discipline, I want you to think of the punitive nature, the corrective element to it. But there is also the the preparatory nature of discipline, where things which may not be fun at the time are preparing you to face something that is going to come. And then there's a third component to this, and, and I'm going to suggest that discipline can be instructive. Instructive. And, 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 and I had one guy in the church in mind when I said this, and he can correct me later on. But when, when and I'll just use Marines today instead of the Army or Navy or anybody else. But when a Marine goes through basic training, and I'm thinking old school Marine Corps, not the new where they, anyways, it's, it's a different world. But in the old school Marine Corps, they, they, there were all three of these elements involved where there was, you stepped out of line and there was discipline by way of punishment. There was discipline by way of preparation so that you were prepared to face what the drill instructor thought you may face in the future. And then there was instructive parts Instruction, meaning this is how you field strip a rifle and put it back together. And you may, I don't know, I never went through it, but you may do it dozens or hundreds of times. This is how you climb a rope, or this is how you do this, this is how you do that. And, and it's drilled into your mind, and it's not pleasant beyond all imagining, but it is instructive so that you learn something, so that when the time comes, you know how to do what you need to do. So you have the corrective component, you have the preparation component, and you have the instructive component to discipline. And God treats us because we are his children. And discipline is going to come from God in all three of those ways to the believer who is on the course, who needs to finish the course in faith well at the end. There will be correction when we are wrong. There will be the instruction that we need and there will be the preparation so that when it is all uphill, when the ground is rocky, when the waves are crashing up against our knees, we are prepared to face all of these things so that we can finish the course. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ who has already done it. And he has suffered at the hands of sinful men so that we can finish the course. And so it just took for me a little bit of twisting or adding to my idea of sin and adding to my idea of discipline to bring a little more clarity to me 
about what is being spoken of here. So who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now I'm going to read verses 6 through 10, make a few comments along the way. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is discipline that allows you or keeps you enduring. It is the hard things that God is orchestrating in your life if we focus our attentions on him that will keep us staying the course. Now here's my problem. It may not be yours. My major concern is this. Make the hard stuff stop. That's what I want. Whether it's discipline that's coming because I deserve punishment, whether it is discipline that is coming because I need instruction, whether it is discipline that is coming because I need to be prepared, you know what I want? I want relief. And most people, and I'm, I, I want to be very careful so that I'm understood here, will tell you that if something in your mind is not right, something is wrong. That's not the message of Hebrews. The message of Hebrews is, if you're going through challenging times, God is at work in you producing endurance so that you can finish the course. All we want to do is say, what's the magic button to flip the switch to make the discipline go away? And we have that question, and it is a legitimate question. Dave, how do I know whether I'm being disciplined for something I did wrong, or whether I'm being instructed, or whether I'm being prepared? And, and, and I don't want to brush this aside and be too cavalier about the whole thing. If you are genuine in your pursuit of knowing, Lord, is there sin in my life that needs to be corrected? Is God not the most willing to show you what that is and to deal with it? That is never our problem, really and truly. The other challenges... The other hardships, we look at those and we say, Lord, I can't understand why I may go, be going through them, but I understand that you are causing them because you love me and you are my father and you are preparing me or you are instructing me so that I might finish the course well and in faith. And that's why I'm going through this. And I draw to your attention the individual Job. I won't spend a lot of time here, but what lessons did Job learn during all of his trial? It's a very interesting question. You see, the whole book of Job asks one question. His three friends say, Job, you're going through hard times because you must have done something wrong and God is punishing for it. And if you can figure out what it is and deal with it, then the pain's going to go away. That's how Job works. The problem is Job knew he had no sin. 
and he knew he had done nothing wrong, and yet the discipline was still there. And at the end of the book of Job, God didn't say, here's a list of things that I'm going to tell you that you learned through all of this. The only thing that happened with Job was that Job's head with the loving hands of God was turned from this world which was hostile toward his faith and fixed his eyes on the author and perfecter of his faith. And Job put his hand over his mouth and said, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me to understand. His eyes were fixed on God, his father, and, and the reason for the discipline went away. And he finished the course in faith. So in a very odd way, we are to praise God for the discipline which creates in us endurance to finish the course. You see how this flies in the face of so much modern thinking? If something's wrong, fix it and you'll get out from underneath the pain. The book of Hebrews says, be prepared to be disciplined throughout the entire course of the race. Because God wants you to finish and he is going to work on instructing you and he's going to work on informing you and he's going to work on disciplining you punitively so that you can stay the course. And then he gives examples of fathers. I'm, I'm nearly done. I know we started a little late, so I get a bit of grace. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't see discipline going on, you don't belong to the Father. Well, now wait a minute. Somebody told me, come to faith in Christ and everything's going to be perfect. I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And my kids are going to adore me. And I'm going to spit on the ground and kingdoms of gold are going to raise up. The author of Hebrews says, no, God's going to keep your nose to the grindstone because he wants you to finish the course. And he says in verse 9, besides this, you all have had earthly fathers who disciplined you and respected them. Now, I want to be careful here and I want to be serious about this for just 30 seconds. Not all of us had perfect fathers. And it's possible that some of you had terrible fathers. And, and I get that. I get that. And I'm, I'm genuinely, my dad wasn't perfect. He was good, but he wasn't perfect. But our Father in Heaven is perfect. And he never disciplines out of anger. And what he instructs us in, we need to know. And the endurance that we need so that we are not weary and faint-hearted, we need to know. And we need to know it through discipline, whether it's punitive or whether it's instructive. So we need to be very careful not to... Not to say something is wrong because I'm going through hard times. 
Because I read Hebrews and I say, this doesn't sound fun. In fact, in verse 10, it says this, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Listen to this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Has anything truer ever been said? Discipline of any type is never pleasant. It's not supposed to be. It's not the point of the exercise. It is supposed to be uncomfortable so that we can fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. And then this concludes, but later, listen to these words, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's the peaceful fruit of righteousness? It is not perfection now. It is not health, wealth, perfect relationships, ideal families, because we live in a hostile world, friends. The peaceful fruit of righteousness is the glory of Christ in his kingdom that we are all running toward. And that's why we're being disciplined along the way, so that we can be brought to that prize. And in that, there is no greater sense of joy and security and peace. You see, shalom doesn't mean the stopping of that which would harm us. Shalom means rest in the midst of trial, among about 10 million other things. The, the peaceful fruit of righteousness is ours through discipline because God loves us. And he disciplines us perfectly. But he disciplines us so that we keep our eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Father, um, whether I have been clear or confusing, may that which was clear be brought to light to the glory of Christ. Amen.